Good morning, everyone, and thank you very much for joining me for Sunday Forum at St. Luke's Church. Uh, I'm Ed Bacon, the interim rector of St. Luke's in downtown Atlanta, and I am absolutely thrill thrilled and honored to uh, have this conversation today with Professor Woody Register of Sewanee, uh, the University of the South. Um, and let me just say a really quick word about why I wanted to have this conversation. Uh, last month, uh, several of us were absolutely intellectually, spiritually, and morally arrested uh, by this amazing statement that the board of um, that the the board of trustees uh, of Sewanee. Uh, released about changing the story of the University of the South from the story where the University of the South uh, was a promoter of uh, the Confederacy and of enslaving human beings and the lost cause that followed that to a, a new story uh, that is uh, what I would call a story of following Jesus. Uh, in the 21st century. But that's what we're gonna unpack. Um, and, but first, I, I simply want to welcome the uh, professor of um, history, the American History uh, Department, and the director of the Roberson Project at the University of the South, um, Professor Woody Register. Woody, thank you and welcome. Thank you, Ed. It's great to be here. It's uh, I am honored as well. I, I'm I'm just stunned. I I'm, I'm so grateful. So, Woody, if you don't mind, will you tell us a little bit about your own story? I know that you're a child of Alabama near Montgomery, and tell us how you how and and a Southern Baptist, and how that um, young man got to Swanee and then went to Brown and then came back to Swanee. If you'd just tell us that story. Sure. Um, I'm not, I'm, in some ways it makes perfect sense that I ended up at Suwannee, in other ways it, do, it doesn't. Uh, I guess I ended up there uh, back in 1976, that will give you some idea of the long history we're talking about here. Um, uh, from Evergreen, Alabama, a small town uh, 70 miles south of Montgomery. Um, and in a way I followed in the footsteps of some other young men who had come to Sewanee from my, from my hometown. I think that after, uh, after me, however, there's been no one from my hometown. Uh, so I, uh, I pretty much dried up the, uh, the supply there. But, but when I visited Sewanee uh, back in the mid seventies, um, it seemed like the most collegiate place that I visited. I was looking for a small, small college to attend and it just seemed kind of the ideal representative of, um, of what I thought a college should be and look like in my mind. But, uh, but I was, wasn't really well prepared for what I would discover there and the, the rapid education I got on many fronts. But, um, but probably, and probably the most surprising thing about it was that I fell in love with um, history and fell in love with studying history, which to that point in my life had been 
um, uh, given uh, given to me by um, a variety of coaches and other such uh, folks, uh, as is often the case at the high school level, and had nothing done nothing to uh, to inspire me, but. Um, for my very first day in class uh, back in you know, 1976, in my very first history class, um, I was I was turned on to the kind of critical edge in thinking about the present as well as the past that uh, that history offered more so than any field of study that I encountered at the college level, and that's what I pursued, and it. It made me decide to um, become a history professor, which there's no uh, precedent for that in my family at all, and came much surprised my parents a great deal, let us say. But uh, but it turned out well for me. I, I ended up going to Brown after a hiatus as a as a newspaper reporter, uh, and then after Brown, although I had no intention of ending up back at Sewanee, somehow fate brought me here. Uh, and I've been here since uh, 1992, uh, wow. teaching U.S. history. Yeah. So. I, Woody, before we go on, I, I simply want to put an asterisk by the phrase critical edge mm -hmm. um, and maybe invoke that later in our conversation. Um, I, I think that that is an intrinsically important value for someone to have in their thinking is to simply bring a critical edge. And as a priest, I would quickly add, and also a, a, a robust faith and a contemplative attitude also. So I'm not talking about the critical edge to the exclusion of those other things, but it is just so important, it seems to me, to live with a critical edge in life about everything. And it just seems to me that this project we're going to now talk about uh, is an embodiment of having a critical edge, not only for a thinker like you, a teacher like you, but also an institution like the University of the South. And let me just asterisk that for right now. Um, and, and feel free to come back to that whenever you want. But now, uh, let's, as we continue to lay the foundation for our conversation, if you don't mind, please now talk about the story of the Roberson Project and what gave rise to that and what your role has been and how it has brought us to this Board of Regents um, a statement. Well, the Roberson Project has a number of, uh, of deep roots, um, personal as well as institutional. On the personal side, you know, I started teaching at Suwannee in 1992. Um, and over the next decade or more, I have become increasingly uncomfortable and unsatisfied by the way in which the institution told the story of its origins and early history. Um, and this was something that I compensated for in my classes by introducing uh, material about Sewanee, especially about Sewanee and the slave trade, that um, that was not part of a story that we were telling uh, in general. But mostly, I thought that you know that was all I needed to do: complain that we didn't do more, and then do what I could do in my own classes. Um, as you, as I mentioned earlier, and you noted, uh, and I'm I went to grad 
graduate school in history at Brown. And Brown University in 2003, uh, under its new president and the first African-American president of uh, one of the Ivy League institutions, Ruth Simmons, launched its own study into uh, Brown's history with slavery. Uh, and this was a, uh, uh, the first of its kind, that any institution had taken this on at that level. And so I was following that from a, what, 1,500 mile distance uh, down in Sewanee and kept saying, well, why aren't we doing this? I would say to my colleagues, or I'd say to my students in my class, shouldn't we be doing this? But I never said, shouldn't I be doing something like this? Wow. Um, as I thought it was somebody else's job. Yeah. And, um, so, and so by the mid, the middle part of that decade in 2015 and 16, I had, um, I had reached a point where I'd been doing a lot of research about the university itself uh, and, and the, the sense of something more needing to be done had just grown to the point where uh, with the uh, encouragement of the provost in 2015 and 16, um, I put together a proposal. And so there were a number of incidents around this time, outside of Sewanee and inside Sewanee, that, that motivated me. But I had the institutional backing, I had the administrative backing, if I wished to take this on. And they said, the provost in particular, John Swallow said, you are the person to do this. Why do you keep saying you're not? So, so, I, uh, so that's what I did. And from that point, we planned and, the, and we joined this consortium of other institutions called University Studying Slavery. Um, and then we brought in uh, a young scholar uh, from William and Mary, whom I had met through the University Studying Slavery. She directs their program there. We brought her to Sewanee for a year to help us out. And it is just, it's grown from that. Uh, and in ways that we hadn't foreseen or hadn't planned, but have, have, all been, uh, have all been good ways. So we effectively launched really just a month before the, uh, the terrible incidents in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, and, but then that incident in and of itself, or those, you know, the violence there, um, so put us on our first dose of steroids uh, and increase the energy, increase the, uh, the sense of urgency to what we were doing. And then, you know, as we all well know, things keep happening uh, in the United States that give us additional pressure, additional sense of, of, of um, kind of ethical urgency about the work we're doing. So that's a, a shorthand version. Um, but I, let, let me say two other things. Uh, one is that I'm not the only one, I'm the director, but I have a terrific team, including um, great colleagues in the college and the School of Theology here. Second, um, a year or more ago, we, we initially started as the, the, uh, the, the slavery project at Sewanee, but we changed our name officially a year ago um, and as a memorial to our friend and colleague, Houston Roberson, who came to Sewanee in 1997 um, as, as the first full-time African-American uh, member of the college faculty. 
1997. And Houston was a scholar of African-American history. So again, a new uh, first time we had hired someone uh, on a full-time basis whose expertise was in that. So Houston's hiring was a kind of watershed moment. And he was the first African-American to be tenured uh, in the university. But beyond that, Houston was, um, was, a beautiful, uh, was a beautiful soul. He was uh, uh, he was a great inspiration and a great shaper of the campus um, climate here. Made Sewanee, he was indispensable to several generations of Sewanee students, especially students of color. Uh, and Houston died in 2016 um, to our, a great loss. So we have we memorialize his record by taking that name on. So um, let's go back just a minute to, I, I want to make a note about the name of this visiting scholar that you brought in for a year. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what she had been doing. Yeah. Jody Allen is her name. And um, she's a, at the time, she was the director of the Lemon Project at William and Mary. Ah, William and Mary. Mm -hmm. And she's African American and a, a scholar of African American history. And she had uh, taken on the directorship of that project, which was which was one of the earliest, the first to be uh, launched, and has been one of the most influential. Um, and she also is an incredibly terrific person. Uh, and she came and spent a year at Sewanee, taught courses, and worked with us to um, give us the benefit of her experience. Um, and she was, uh, her influence was uh, immeasurable. Got it. So, on the, thank you very much. On the, on the journey, now, I, I'm just assuming uh, that in 2016, when Professor Roberson died, that the slavery project, as it was then known, really had matured so that some things had kind of become established in the, in the retelling of the story. Hmm. And you knew that you all were going to now do something with even greater significance. Maybe you even had this uh, kind of foreseeing that some kind of statement would be coming like the statement of the Board of Regents. Am I, am I assuming that or am I projecting? Well, um, I think, well, it's the journey from, from then to now has been um, a steady one, but I'm not sure that we, we foresaw this kind of statement occurring at this time. I see. Um, and I think one of the reasons that it has that it has occurred when it did is because of the um, is we have some uh, new leadership here. Yes. Um, but that but I think even more important is because of the um, the racial racist violence uh, right. of the last. Let me count back how many months, eight months, nine right. months um, that that intensified our sense of uh, of this being the time to do this. Yeah. Can't speak for the regents, uh, but that's certainly certainly how I felt. 
Well, let's take one thing about Houston Roberson. Houston published the first essay about the first work of any kind about Sewanee's history from an African-American perspective. And um, this was in 2008. The, the history of Sewanee has always been told through uh, the eyes of white people, through the experiences of white people, people in the voices of white people with the priorities of Sewanee, of the white people who have come through Sewanee. Um, you read the histories, you would barely know that this, is, this community had uh, a population of two to 300 African-Americans at any point after, 19, after 1950. You would think it was an all-white community. Uh, and our archive preserves this false image. So Houston wrote this essay, um, which was published as part of the sesquicentennial of the founding of the university, that really, um, I think, opened, I don't wanna say a can of worms, but it, it, it uh, revealed to us the real need, um, the, the, what was really missing from the, the histories that we had been telling about, about this university. And it also brought, pardon me for using the phrase again, a kind of critical edge, or it sharpened the critical edge that we were, um, that we were bringing to bear on that history. So that inspiration uh, is with us still also. So um, I have, you know, a million more questions about the process, because mm -hmm. I think that's fascinating, almost as fascinating as the content. But let's uh, kind of bracket the process and come back to it in a few minutes, because I'm sure there was so much soul searching and so many epiphanies and so many moments of the handwriting being on the wall that really, it would really be good if we can fit in. But let's jump to the, to the content. What is the story about the genesis of the University of the South that has stayed with the University of the South, which Houston Roberson was, Roberson was pointing out that your, the project you lead has retold and where we're going now. You don't have to answer all of those questions right now, but just tell us what is the new story that we really need to understand about the genesis of Sewanee? Well, I think in order to get the, uh, the import of the, of the way in which we're trying to tell the story, you kind of have to know the old version of the story. Sounds this good. Is principally told by, uh, by people in Sewanee uh, themselves who have been uh, kind of masters of the university's history uh, until the last 15 years or so. And this was a history that, <coughs> excuse me, that emphasized that uh, the university was founded in 1858. That's when the charter was issued uh, by bishops of the Episcopal Church, principally to, tra uh, to train uh, a native uh, ministry, uh, that is uh, Southern men trained for the ministry of the Episcopal Church in a region where the needs for more priests uh, was acute. 
um, that was uh, designed to be a literary center, a, a center for the production of, of literature, um, and that aspired to be one of the great universities, not just of the United States, but of the world. Then people would say, well, of course, these men who founded the university were slaveholders. They were part of their world, of that world. That was, you know, that was the world into which they were born, and that was the world of which they were a part. Of course, and that's no news. Um, and so the effort has uh, usually been to cordon off slavery as, a, as having any formative or significant role in the founding of the university, and to focus instead on the, the vision of uh, a school of theological preparation uh, or a center of theological preparation and of, of producing literature and of being a great university. And then, but it's also told as in a kind of romantic tragic, the tragic form where the Civil War intervened and if it hadn't, this would have been one of the world's premier institutions. Now, everything they've said is, um, has, has an element of truth to it, an element of accuracy. But the, the problem is the cordoning off of slavery, to say that, yes, they were slaveholders, but that's incidental to the founding of the university. And this has a weird sort of you know, echo or parallel to the lost cause myth that says, yes, there was slavery, but it was incidental or circumstantial to the, uh, uh, a minor circumstance in the causes of the Civil War. So what we have done, what we argue is that you can't cordon off slavery. In fact, you cannot even understand the founding of the university without uh, understanding the significance of slavery and the campaign to strengthen and preserve and perpetuate slavery there was part of, there was this at the center of the reason for founding the university. Um, the university was founded as an instrument to, pre to preserve a, a civilization of bondage. Um, now for people who don't like to hear this say, oh, you're, you're being reductionist. You're saying they were just uh, crass materialists. This was just uh, about economics. Well, certainly it was about economics. But this defense of slavery that was mounted and, and supported by the pro-slavery Christianity of these uh, Episcopal bishops and, uh, and their lay uh, allies, um, it did not, uh, I mean, slavery was not something they were ashamed of. In fact, just the opposite. All of them believed sincerely and fervently that slavery, and enslaved people had been placed in the hands of white people, not just to uplift a savage people out of barbarism into the true light of Christianity, but also to, um, to accelerate the, uh, the journey towards, um, uh, really towards the, uh, the second coming of Christ. Uh, yeah. Is that the, the millennium would, would be hastened. The arrival of the millennium would be hastened by slavery because, um, and this was Stephen Elliott of Georgia, by the way, uh, the Bishop of Georgia, who articulated this most clearly, that this was, uh, that slavery was an instrument to prepare 
uh, African people to return to Africa and then uh, Christianize that continent, globalizing the reach of Christianity and, and hastening the day of the second coming. So, so slavery for them was not just a system of labor, although it was a system of labor. They, they regarded critics of slavery as, as faithless, as infidels, as the enemies uh, of God's message. Uh, and they regarded themselves as a conservative and true practitioner of Christianity, uh, as opposed to those um, people within northern churches or in churches in England who were saying, uh, contending that, that slavery was, uh, was, you know, basically was sinful at its core. So this, this, you can't separate the, the idea of being a, uh, a center for priestly instruction from slavery. I mean, one reason the South needed Episcopal priests was to evangelize the enslaved, which was, a, was of utmost importance to Bishop Polk of Louisiana, Bishop Elliott of Georgia, and Bishop Odie of Tennessee, not to mention Bishop Green of Mississippi. These are all the titanic figures uh, who founded the Episcopal Church uh, in the southern states. Um, and for them, uh, the missionary um, goals of the Episcopal Church to evangelize the enslaved population was of critical importance and one of the chief defenses they offered for the, uh, for the practice of slavery. So, so go ahead. I was saying, so what we try to do is, is see the world the way they saw it, not the way we wish they saw it. I mean, we, people have wished that, um, that slavery uh, had, what wasn't instrumental, wasn't foundational. Uh, and because they think that somehow tarnishes the founding of the university, and if you can separate that from it, then you have a lot good, a lot of good left. But, but what we say is you have to see that world the way they saw it. They were not ashamed of slavery. They, in fact, they were, I don't I can't say proud, but um, it, was, it, was, it was part of their mission as Christians, as churchmen. So, Let's dig into that just a second. I mean, the the research, and, and by the way, I want to here make sure that all of our viewers know that your website is so packed with good, reliable, and accessible history about the this, what I keep calling the founding genesis and the founding values. And one of the questions I want to pose to you right now is that rather than being ashamed of having enslaved persons, each of these three bishops owned human beings. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and one, maybe more than a hundred enslaved persons was were well, Leonidas Polk. Um, uh, held at any time as many as 400 people in bondage. 
and over the course of his life, I don't, you know, probably you know, many more than that. Right. And so back to their attitude about slavery, rather than hiding it or being ashamed of it. Now, I'm, I'm going to state it in my bumbling way, and then you come back and correct, but that that was a symbol, a structure, a system, which held up the superiority of white men in the South to bring something very important to civilization because they had the gift of slavery and that it, and they were embodying that people who were enslaved had an aptitude for being enslaved persons and not for being these leaders that white men really did have the aptitude to offer civilization and the world. Now, have I overstated that or is that kind of what they said in their founding statements? Uh, you haven't overstated it. They believe that the, the racial order of the, the slave civilization of the South um, corresponded to natural aptitudes, that af people of African descent were, um, were essentially children in the world, incapable of adult responsibilities, incapable of um, uh, what we would expect the, the leadership class of white men to have. They needed white people to steward them through the world. They needed white people to take care of them. Um, they, you know, this is the basis of a kind of pro-slavery or paternalistic pro-slavery argument. Um, they also believe, on the other hand, that God had placed Africans in the hands of white people to free white people to achieve great things. So, as they put it, uh, quite bluntly, there is a laboring class and then there is a thinking and leadership class. The laboring class exists to liberate the thinking class to, um, to propel civilization forward. That is why they are here. I mean, Eliot himself said, you know, cotton was a gift from God. Cotton enabled us, gave us a reason to uh, expand the enslaved population to bring, uh, which enables us to bring them uh, into true religion, and then at the same time frees us up to um, to propel the course of civilization forward. So they see a grand order, they see a divine order in all of this, and and it says, if you if you will just open your eyes, you will see this too. That just makes me want to stop and breathe for a minute. Uh, it is so alarming and stunning. Um, and these, this was literally the way all of these folks thought. And they had a slaveholder Christianity that they had developed around this thesis. Mm -hmm. Now, just to state that gives me pause. So, 
Now, now that we've stated the content of the story, in the service of where we are in the United States right now, in going through the process that I think Sawani has gone through, the University of South has gone through and continues to go through. My, my, my assumption is that there have been a lot of soul searching struggles to get to these statements that you've published, published and that people are still struggling with that to some degree about what all that means and how all that's been manifest, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But let us return just a minute to the journey. Can you talk a little bit about what epiphanies or experiences of, of the handwriting on the, on the wall being aware, we, being conscious, prior to the massacre in Charleston of recent years? And then since then, because I think that you're the historian, uh, it does seem to me that that has been a turning point for the waking up of white persons and coming to terms and, and a, then a moment of reckoning, just has um, the kind of the threefold murder of Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and Breonna Taylor have since the pandemic has started. But let's go back to Charleston. Kind of tell us about what epiphanies had already occurred that had signaled that there was a point of no return and then what that did for awareness. Um. Does I mean, that question make sense? I I think so. You're you're asking you're asking me um, what what events, larger events outside of yes, uh, ha, has have had a, an influence or an impact. Now let me rush to say, Woody, that 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 I may just be imposing my own narrative structure. That, that it may have been a very different epiphanic journey. There, there might have been epiphanies that were not related to those. Uh, I know you were having your own epiphanies and, and on and on and on. So please say to me, Ed, that's not exactly the way it kind of developed and evolved. No, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, um, and, the, and the massacre in Charleston, um, at Mother Emanuel Church was uh, uh, was a kind of seismic event for all of us, I think. You see, I think that one of the most um, important, maybe the most important outcome of this, of these kinds of incidents, this kind of violence that you're talking about, is the, has been the uh, persistent raising of Black voices. Um, that is that it's not just that uh, these events caused me and or maybe other white people in the United States, certainly not all, but um, to awaken to something. It's been the way that African-American voices have 
continued to rise in volume and we have had uh, to listen uh, and um, I think become aware of, especially in the case of Swanee, aware of the way in which privilege can work um, to the advantage of those of you know the majority population here at this university. So let me try to explain. So I I, I was uh, very fortunate to be able to visit Mother Emanuel a year after, maybe two years after the uh, the massacre. Uh, and to be taken on a tour by the church historian. And um, so she took us into, uh, we entered in through a very tight, secure door into the basement of the church. And we all gathered in there. And there was, um, uh, they have a, I guess, a weekday, once a week uh, day lunch for uh, members of their, of their church community. So there were mostly elderly people um, gathered around tables, enjoying a you know a home cooked uh, kind of buffet lunch that Sunday, and she brought us. So she brought us into this space, and we're standing there. And then it dawned on us that even as this laughing and um, uh, joyous event was going on there with the the uh, the, the, uh, the members of the church having lunch. Uh, and, and other things were going on, that this was the site of the massacre. This was where Dylan Roof had killed all of those, those people, right there in that basement. But there was nothing there to indicate that that was where it had occurred, because the life of the church was ongoing. Um, there had been, so far as we could tell, no effort to memorialize or to section off that as the site of the massacre. The life of the church was going on. Um, and it was that kind of powerful message uh, of love and, and hope and faith that, uh, that stuck with many of us who were, and we were all from Sewanee, many of us who were part of the tour that day. Um, and I think that that's, uh, that message has been uh, influential to me and to some of my colleagues here that you can do uh, you can do this work um, in a spirit uh, of love and hope that we're not trying to prosecute the university we're not trying to you know send the university into time out for its past transgressions we're doing so as a labor of love and hope uh, because what this institution has meant for all of us, and this includes people who haven't, uh, who are part of this community and have never studied here or had a degree from here. We love this community and we have hope for it to be better. Um, and for me, that's been the most powerful message of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, yes, there is a lot of anger, but there's also within it a tremendous message of hope. A year ago, I went to a um, to an event, a, a kind of, uh, it was during Black History Month, a service at uh, a black church near Sewanee, down, as we say, down in the valley, and was invited to, to be a part of this service. 
And, um, um, and so the crowd at this church, many of whom had connect, have connections to Sewanee, um, it was a large crowd, but it was mostly, I would say, people in my age group or older. Uh, and yet everyone there, even though we're talking, and we're talking about just all of us are just regular middle Tennessee folks uh, in the small town of Cowan, uh, packing this church for this event, but all in the, the graying set. Uh, and everyone is wearing Black Lives Matter uh, uh, wristbands. This is the message, right? This is uh, that Black Lives Matter is, is really rooted in uh, a kind of shared American experience, a shared American history. It's not some outside force. It's not some, some version of uh, alien communism come in. It's, it was right there among us regular Middle Tennessee folks gathered in this church. And, and for me, this too has been a way in which these events that occur in other places, you know, uh, Atlanta and um, South Georgia are not that far away, um, have been brought home to the work that we do. So I apologize for that long-winded answer. And I, I, could go, I could go on with other examples like this, but this is, I think, these, these messages uh, have um, inspired us, have uh, uplifted us as we've been trying to do this difficult work of investigating our institution's history. And this is up well into the 20th century. It's, it really is up to the present. Um, but doing so in a spirit uh, of love and of hope for a, um, hope for healing, and hope for reconciliation. Very powerful, Woody. I, I really appreciate your doing what you've just done. I do want to uh, do another asterisk, and, and you've sufficiently returned us to this notion of the critical edge, because I, I really do think that health depends on our being able to be self-critical um, on our personal level, but also our institutional cultural levels, which uh, you and the Roberson Project and, and the Board of Regents are embodying. Um, but there's another asterisk I want to just note, and you, this was your phrase, that um, the massacre at Mother Emanuel in Charleston was a revelation of the way privilege actually works. And that um, that might could be a subtitle of what you've been talking about in terms of the Roberson project, that um, you've been unearthing what um, the story can be made by privilege. That that uh, or Isabel Wilkerson in her new book Cast talks about and a lot of people who've written about systemic racism talk about those being um, powers, energies that are around looking for people and groups to make them tangible, to make them embodied. It's like um, 
systemic racism is kind of lurking around, uh, waiting for you to to grab you and for you to in, embody it. Does that make sense? Is that too? No. Let me follow up by, I mean, it does make sense. Um, let me explain a little bit about what I, I was trying to say in relation to what you just said. Um, people like me uh, can experience Sewanee, can walk around the beautiful campus, and I'm, I'm sure that many of the people who are listening into this uh, probably know something about this uh, Sewanee and the, the picturesque and, and, and beautiful wooded and mountaintop site of the university and the Gothic buildings and all of that. The we, holy mountain I hear. You know. uh, if, if you insist. Uh, <laughs> so if you wander around Sewanee, you can do so in a way that uh, someone like myself can do so in a way that, that, that has that feeling that I had however many years ago 1975 was, that this is the, you know, the college ideal and what better place to be. But if you look more closely and you look more critically, if you know more and expect to know more about the, the buildings here, about the memorials here, about the names here, um, which, you know, you don't have to know that. But if you are African-American and you come here, there are ways in which this, um, uh, this campus signals to you how you stand in relation to this place. You, my African-American colleagues and students uh, encounter a kind of residual hostility here. It's below the su surface in a way for me, but it's not below the surface for them. This is, uh, and the university, I would argue, has a responsibility to acknowledge and account for that. Um, and there are many ways to do that, but we have to understand that uh, what strikes, you know, that we have the privilege of not even asking who Leonidas Polk was. We have the privilege of not even worrying about who Charles Quintard was or who Stephen Elliott was and, and his kind of um, the, the kind of racial utopias that he sought to experiment in. We don't have to ask that, but I think black people in the United States know that to be ignorant of that of those meanings is to tread in dangerous territory or in threatening territory. You have to know your environment. So, um, so I think it it has when I mean it it has awakened me a bit to to white privilege is is realizing the privilege of not having to know. And this is what we want our students here, that we want this to be part of the learning and teaching environment of our campus, that we want all of our students to know this history. Um, again, not so that to, um, uh, to prosecute and condemn the university, but to have the knowledge that it takes to imagine and then to work toward um, 
a better present and future. Uh, one where that hostility is, is, is overturned. So powerful, Woody. To overturn the hostility is such a call to us as our vocation and mission. Um, just want to make a note of that. So uh, we're running out of time, but uh, I think we can't do our job here if we don't say something about the word repair. Um, overturning hostility is part of it. Uh, your report, uh, we haven't even, you know, scratched the surface of it. You talk about buildings and monuments and all of that that still have to be addressed at the University of the South. Other, um, and unfortunately we didn't get to talk about this national consortium of institutions of higher learning that you were working with and that's such a powerhouse in our country right now to overturn the hostilities and do the repair. And, you know, <laughs> other questions about the National Episcopal Church, because Sewanee is such a brand of the National Episcopal Church, um, you know, which is the, the institution in which I live and move and, and breathe. Um, and then there's this, this whole business about repair. So uh, without, with running the risk of asking you to respond um, too quickly. Um, do, do any of those words and values bring up thoughts for you to share right now? Sure, absolutely they do. Um, let me just say, and here I'm, I've been influenced by a lot of people as well as by my own experience, um, but especially influenced by uh, my friend uh, Richard Cellini. I don't know if you know Richard's name, uh, Richard is the, uh, the founder of the Georgetown Memory Project, uh, which has uh, recovered the names of so many of the descendants of the original enslaved people that Georgetown sold in the 1830s to forestall bankruptcy. And, and they've, they've connected with thousands of descendants of these people and, and brought them into Georgetown's force, Georgetown, to incorporate into their thinking about what uh, Georgetown must do. So Richard's been a profound influence this way. And one of the things he says is that if, if you focus on changing the names of buildings, if you focus on uh, even something like giving, you know, scholarships or, or whatever, you're really, uh, in a sense, uh, doing ethical navel-gazing here. You're, you're, you're focusing on your own campus, but the picture is really bigger than that. It's much bigger than that. And none of that constitutes any impact on the harm that has been caused over generations by, you know, by slavery's legacies of white suppression and racist violence uh, and, and, and legal and other forms of oppression. None of that, all of that, and its manifestations today, as well as its manifestations over the last several generations, none of that is really touched by changing the name of a building. 
So he had challenged, has challenged us. And I think we in the Roberson Project group take this very seriously, as do people across our campus, that we have to do more. Or that we, or as Richard puts it, you have to make a decision. You shouldn't approach this as an obligation. We must do something. He says, rather, the obligation is to answer the question, will you do something or will you not do something? And by doing something, he means something that matters. You must make that choice, and that must be deliberative. It must be uh, uh, through a process of discernment so that you then make a choice. And you do it not because you have to. And I think this, I, this should appeal to you, uh, Father Bacon, is you do it because you want to, because you believe it's the right thing to do. Now, that may be to do nothing or it may be to do something. We think, I think, that we need to do something to repair. The word, the verb uh, to repair needs to be part of our uh, vocabulary. We need to choose to make it part of our vocabulary and part of our mission. And I think that the, the Regent's statement is a step in that direction. I think the Vice Chancellor's uh, outline of, of seven initiatives is a step in that direction. We're at the starting point of this journey, but we are doing things. We are in, you know, influenced by the Georgetown Memory Project and the wonderful people who work for that. We already are seeking to identify the descendants of the persons enslaved by our founders. We already are seeking to work with the residents of Sewanee's black neighborhoods and their descendants to recover and preserve their history for their good, not for ours. Um, all of these and other things that we, we are doing or hope to do are in the, the genre of repair. Um, if Sewanee does this on its own, it will amount to nothing. But if Sewanee is joined by others, by other institutions like us, then we can really make a difference. But it, it, again, it can't be, we can't be the only, only car on the highway. We have to be joined by others. We have to have a posse. We have to have a, I don't know uh, what metaphor I want to pull out here, but we can't do this alone. And, um, and we can't do it for our own glory either. Uh, that, all of that would be, in my mind, a failure on our part, um, a failure of reaching too low as opposed to reaching too high. Work on campus, but that can't be it alone. Well, you're right. You've you have spoken to me. You've got me, um, and I'm I'm very deeply moved by your saying that it has to make a difference. Um, uh, doing and choosing something that matters and it needs to be something you want to do not that you ought to do because I, I'm a strong believer in energy and and ought energy um, and, and we need ought energy sometimes we ought to do certain things but ought energy in the end is inferior to want to do something energy for the values that you earlier articulated for hope and love. Um, 
this is that's what's at stake do we do we love one another as ourselves uh, do we see that the other person is ourself and that as dr king said that that's the way the universe is actually constructed is that you really can't be all that you need to be and you were made to be unless i am and vice versa so that reciprocation in what Thich Nhat Hanh, bless his heart, who's dying as we speak, uh, named interbeing, that we are, we are interbeing with one another. So, gosh, this has been powerful. Um, we could go on and on, and we may have opportunities to do that, but uh, my, my words are thank you and bless you. It is really an honor to have spent this time with you, and thank you and bless you for your ongoing work. Well, it's, it's been my pleasure and honor. And I, and I certainly thank you for what you said, but I would still say, uh, lucky for me, lucky for Sawani, uh, I am part of a large group of committed people, students, faculty, uh, everyone. I, I hear you and really appreciate your bow to the power of community instead of individualistically doing this work uh, it it does take a posse it does take a community so thank you professor um, we'll be in touch i look forward to it Call me. i shall and uh, thank everyone for uh being with us today um, on our website we will have links to the roberson project at sewanee and i deeply and enthusiastically commend a visit to that website. You will learn things that you didn't expect to learn. Uh, goodbye, see you next Sunday.